Good morning, church. That's hot. Uh, it's good to see everybody. Please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading from Ephesians 4, 17 through 25 today. Starting in 17, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The word of God. You may be seated, and I'm going to pray. <laughs> uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for today. We ask that your spirit fill this place and fill your your body, the church, Lord. Be with Matt, speak through Matt, and let his words be received and soften those hardened hearts that we just read about. We thank you, and in your son's precious name we pray, amen. Good morning and happy Mother's Day to you all. You don't get to say it to me. You don't get to say it to me. Um, I, I rarely, like our church, our church is 10 years old. Uh, we've never had a Mother's Day service or a Father's Day service. We've never had a 4th of July patriotic type service. Uh, and there's good reason for that, which I won't, I won't take time to preach that. Uh, but I will just say the the result, the origin of my time and what I have to pastor you from um, comes largely through the legacy of my own mom, right? Uh, I, I do have a memory, a distinctive, very clear memory of being four and kneeling next to our God-awfully ugly couch in Akron, Ohio, <laughs> as my mom led me through the sinner's prayer. And I remember praying and asking Jesus to come into my heart. Um, and so much of what I preach and teach and shepherd from, uh, not only for our church, but also for my wife and kids, uh, is part of the very honorable and privileged legacy that my mom has. Uh, and I'm fortunate enough to have two moms, both of them, who raised their kids to follow Jesus. Uh, and so as I, as I leave um, whatever, whatever time of preaching ministry I have, I want you to know that uh, I am fulfilling my calling from Jesus to the church to preach his word to his people for life, um, but the, the extra added benefit for me is I get to leave behind a love letter to my wife and kids as well as to my mom, which is the 
the full body of all of my Bible preaching, my, my love for the Lord, which I want them to, to receive and have as well. Uh, and so in, in some way, every week, I'm, I'm kind of giving back to my mom what, my, what she gave to me. So I just want to honor her and my mother-in-law and all of you, uh, esteemed to be moms by the Lord's grace. So with that said, today's a, a one-off kind of sermon, but it's, it doesn't kind of stand alone, really. Uh, we just finished a sermon series on the book of Colossians in which we, we launched into, as a church, a long-term commitment, a long-term commitment together to not only preach and believe the doctrines of the gospel, but then to actually live those doctrines out in our lives together. And that creates what we call a gospel culture. They're marked by five traits. How, how, what, what, are, what are the signs, the signals? What are the, what's, the, what's the evidence that we're looking for um, to, to find out, like, are we growing in this gospel culture? Are we walking in the kind of family, the kind of reality that, that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again, and now rules over to bring about? Um, and those five traits, you know, they, they're really simple. And, and there are more traits than, than these, right? Um, but these are five we found from the book of Colossians, to, to be a people who are devoted to, to prayer, to be a people who are devoted to living the gospel with that gospel truth as our primary uh, first supernaturally born language, to be a people who are devoted to the scriptures, to be a people who are devoted to loving God and loving one another, and to be a people who are devoted to um, joyful obedience, finding our satisfaction and our joy and our safety and provision, finding our flourishing from God's word, his ways and path for our life, his, his commands. Next week, we're going to begin preaching through a sermon series. It's going to take us all the way through the summer and simply called Gospel Traits. I told you, this is not going anywhere. We're going to be taking the next several months to, to dive deeply into what are the marks, what does it look like for a person to be made new and changed by Jesus Christ? Because that, that doesn't simply bear evidence or, or, or witness simply with the words that someone says. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't simply bear witness that you're a Christian because you have memory of being four and you said the sinner's prayer right? If that is all by itself alone, I, I just simply need to profess and say that I believe in Jesus. That's not a gospel conversion. That's witchcraft. I'm uttering a magical spell, which I believe that God will honor because I said the right words in the right prayerful orientation. Know that the gospel conversion bears fruit and shows testimony, not only with what you say, but how you live. And so today, today's sermon serves as kind of just a, a transition from that into that. And we're looking in the, the book of Ephesians. This is another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to another church, the church in Ephesus. So I want to I start kind of this end of the message by, by asking, like, I think I asked it a few weeks ago in Colossians. Have you ever felt like you needed just your, your life to be new? I just need my life to be new. Back then, we were talking, have you ever felt like you needed a new husband, a new wife? Have you ever felt like you needed new parents? And then after that, we had, like, have you ever felt like you just like, I need a new job, I need a new position? And if you'll recall that we, we discovered from what Paul tells us in the gospel that whether or not you need new people or new circumstances or a new path, you need to be new. You need to be new. Because I, I think enough of us have probably tried, and if you haven't, you'll get there, You've, you've tried and arrived at a position or place in your life where you, you've tried to develop new habits or new disciplines to get your life to change, to get your life to be better, to move forward. You, you've gotten a new house or a new job, a new girl, a new guy. 
possibly a new spouse, new hobbies. Maybe I'll need a new hobby, something leisure activity that will make my life better and feel new. Maybe I, I need, we've got new clothes, we've got new cars. Some have even experienced like maybe I just need a new church. Now I'm going to tell you like I didn't name a single bad thing there, did I? Except like new spouse, okay, right? If you got, a, if you got one and you don't have any biblical grounds to divorce or leave them, then cool, that's your spouse. You don't need a new one, okay? You need to be made new. They need to be made new, but stick together. Some of those things are good changes though. Like they're, they're, they're all fine. They could be exactly what you need. God might be indeed giving you some of those new things or new opportunities. But in the end, those, those new things, those changes in your life that, that, that you make, even if they make you happy for a little while, I think all of us have experienced like this, this feeling that even though the things have changed and there's new stuff, I, I just feel I've somehow gotten back to this place where I still feel like it's all the same. I need newness, like some sort of newness that will last right? As I said, it doesn't matter what you change externally in your life, what you do, what you have, where you go, where you're at, who you're with. You're still you. You're still you. So before we go looking to change things outside of ourselves, we need to be new people. We need to be new people. God, God's intention, his strategy for changing your life starts and continues onward with his changing of you. He doesn't start with what you do, but who you are. And who you are needs to be new so that how you live can change. And that takes us to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. You'll see the first verse 17 on the screen. Paul says this to them. He says, Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Gentiles, according to Paul, in, in that time, Gentiles are, are non-Christians. They're, they're non-believers, okay? These are people who don't believe in God. They don't know Christ. They're not part of his kingdom. They're not part of his people. And the walk of Gentiles was one of futility. In Romans chapter 8, futility is what the whole creation was subjected to because of sin. Now, let me stop for a second at that point of futility and unpack a few things. When the Bible talks of walking here, it's a metaphor for the way you live your life. Be careful how you walk, right? For those of us who are walking in our lives, and that's everybody, it, this is a metaphor for how you approach every aspect of your life. How you do speak, how you do act, what you don't do, how, what and how you eat, drink, how you deal with your own body and other people's bodies, how you deal with and engage your possessions, and how you engage and, and respond to God. This is the person's walk. This is their life. And in futility, here's what futility means. It means to put a lot of sweat and backbreaking effort into something and come to find out that it was worthless. This is, this is futility is, is what makes your work become toil where you work and work and work, and maybe you start out liking your job and, and motivated and excited for what you're supposed to be doing, and then as you work, just nothing seems to be, like, you're, whatever your job is, you've gone out, you've got the field, you've got the plan, you've broken your back tilling the soil, you've sweated your guts out, spreading the seed, and now there's no harvest. There's like a, a few janky little, just like crooked little plants. And you go, what was all this for? This is futility. This, was, this wasn't work, this was toil. And the Apostle Paul says that the Gentiles walk 
in futility. They walk in, they live in futility, working hard and getting nowhere. Those who do not believe in Jesus, those who, who haven't met God and been made new by him, their life goes nowhere. Though they, I mean, they could, they could be Elon Musk. They could be Albert Einstein. They could be Barack Obama. They could be the great, great men or women and achieve so much. But in the end, when, when you stand before God, it gets burnt up and there's nothing left over. There's nothing left, right? It's futility. In, in the Old Testament, King David experienced an interaction with a, with a person walking in futility. Uh, king David is, is like the great king of Israel of the Old Testament. Um, he was, as a young man before he was crowned king, he was, he was on the run from the current king, a guy named Saul. Saul was big, he was tall, he was handsome, he was popular, the people voted him in as king, and he was jealous of David, a, this young shepherd boy, which God had apparently told uh, uh, the, the high priest of the, the, the entire kingdom that that was going to be the next king. And, and David had killed Goliath, and there were tales about him, you know, just hand-wrestling, you know, lions and bears and killing them. And he's this great, you know, poet and, and, and songwriter. And gosh, everyone loves him. And Saul is jealous. So he, he takes his army and starts to chase David through the land of Israel. Now, Saul has all the army. He has the weapons. He has the chariots. He's got a long train of, of material coming in to support his army. He can use the highways and roads. He can travel freely. But David's got a small, dedicated group of people, and they have to live off the land, and they can't travel the roads. They, they, have, to, like, they have to go through the, the, the canyons and over the mountains and hills and hide out in the bushes. They can't light fires during the day because they don't want their smoke to give them away. And yet, regardless of all that Saul has at his, as a, at his use... He never could catch David. He couldn't catch him. And David, who had virtually nothing, he kept on being able to get away. And that, listen, David's life was harder than Saul's. But David writes a song. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Here's what he says about his time in the wilderness being chased by Saul. He, God, made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure on the heights. David says that it's like God gave me the feet of a, a deer. Now, this is what you pay me the big bucks for, is to spend my week looking up strange and esoteric facts that might help us illuminate the scriptures, right? In, a, in, a, in an amazing way, enlightening us and transforming us in, into the likeness of Christ. So here it is. Here's what I learned. The kind of deer that David is talking about most likely is a deer called the Nubian ibex. It's the Spider-Man of deer, okay? What it's known for is, much like a mountain goat, it, it has these feet that can take it and it can like walk on what appears to our naked eye to be like just a sheer rocky cliff sur surface. And they nimbly, gracefully just bound down the side of cliffs. They can walk any trail. So they can go down a nice smooth path and road and they can go straight up the wall. They can be so silent and graceful and nimble in even the hardest of conditions because God created them with the kind of feet they need in order to navigate the terrain he set them on. If you have the feet of a desert deer, you can walk anywhere. And God can give you that. The toughest, the, the, the toughest path is possible with the right feet. 
Saul and David had two different types of feet. Saul and David had two different types of feet. Saul's feet walked in futility, and he marched his men in futility. No matter the food and resources they had, no matter the highway and smooth terrain, the freedom and liberty to go wherever they pleased, didn't matter that they had all the horses and chariots. They, they couldn't move forward and get to where they wanted and needed to go because they didn't have the right feet. And, and David, who had none of those things, he walked in faith with the Lord. He had the feet that God gave to him, and he got further and faster because he was marching with God. David had new feet. Saul had the feet that he was born with, but David had met God, and he believed God and trusted God. And with that, God gave him new feet. I want you to notice, like nowhere in there, like when you go and read the, the, the narrative of 2 Samuel, David, you don't, you don't have a recorded prayer from David asking God to change his path, right? He didn't pray, change my path. But what he did get for his prayers was new feet for the path that God had set him on. So lost people with old feet, we just, they just walk in futility, marching, sweating, trying, changing stuff, going after new and new and new and never getting anywhere. But we can walk in a new, a fruitful, not a futile way because God has given us new feet. I, I want to share then seven ways from this text, from Ephesians, seven new ways that with, as new people with new feet, like how we walk in this life. There are seven points, and just to let you know, um, uh, Steve and I collaborated. We pulled a fast one on you. We only read verses 17 through 25. Uh, we're going through chapter 6, verse 9. So i um, so glad those of you who know better, you brought your own brown sack lunch. Here's point number one. New people walk with a new teacher. New people walk with a new teacher. When we say new, we mean new. John chapter 3, Jesus says, if you want to be in my kingdom, then you have to be born again. You were born once naturally. You have to be supernaturally born in order to be part of my kingdom. You have to be a different person. Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that you're a new creation if you're in Christ. The old you has died. You've died with Jesus on the cross, and the new you, the new self, has arrived with Christ at his empty tomb in his resurrection. And that's, we're, we're, we're supposed to be new if we are in Christ. So if we're new, we walk with a new teacher. Verse 18 through 21, they, the Gentiles, the unbeliever, is darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. So these Gentiles that Paul's speaking of, they're walking in a way, they're living in a way that's considered futile. They got the wrong feet, like Saul, and it's taken them the wrong way, the wrong path, everything. He, here's, a, here's a metaphor, a, a thing that Paul was tapping into that the, the church in Ephesus would have been very familiar with. Like, so we are not so familiar with this, so we're not picking up kind of the references that Paul is using. Let me give that to us so we can pick that up. In that day, when you heard to walk in a new manner, it would often be associated with being chosen by a rabbi, a teacher, an esteemed teacher. In those days, the Jewish rabbis were some of the most elite people in all of their society, and they would hand-select their own disciples, their own students. And if you were chosen as a disciple, as a student of a rabbi, you would depart and live away from your mom and dad. You would live with the rabbi. 
And whatever the rabbi ate, that's what you ate. Whatever he drank, that's what you drank. Whatever, the way he spoke and taught, that's the way you would be, learn to speak and teach. And wherever he slept, you slept. And wherever he traveled, you would travel. And when the rabbi walked, you didn't walk side by side with him because you weren't equal. You, you walked behind him because you're his disciple. And so to be a student, a disciple, was known as being covered in the dust of your rabbi. So it, it meant walking in the dust of your rabbi. As his feet kick up the dust of the road, it gets on you, right? And you, people can tell that you are a disciple because you're covered in someone's dust, in a rabbi's dust. And it was the way that these Gentiles, this is the only way that these Gentiles, these unbelievers knew to walk, to live, to behave. They learned to walk in the dust of their own rabbis. Their, their world, just as our world today, is filled with rabbis. Everyone's teaching something. Everyone's got a message. Whether it's a commercial or a movie, and it could be the most benign movie, like kids' movies. Disney always has a message, regardless of how you feel about where their messages have gone lately, right? They've always had a message. Maybe, maybe you used to be okay with that because you like their messages, but now all of a sudden you don't want Disney to teach messages because you don't like those messages? Well, they've been doing that all the, They've always been doing that. Your news programs have a message. They're teaching us something. It's not simply a professor or a teacher in a school. It's not simply a pastor in a pulpit. The world is filled with rabbis. And the question is, whose dust are you covered in? Whose dust are you covered in? But because Jesus has made us new, then Jesus is our true rabbi, our true master. We're to walk in his dust. We're supposed to follow him. So we're, we're supposed to see and, and find Christ in his word and then go, if that's his heart toward this, <coughs> my heart needs to be covered in that dust and that needs to be my heart for this. If this is how he thinks about this thing or that person or that activity, then, man, I'm in disagreement with him. I need to get covered in his dust and start being aligned in agreement with his way of viewing things. How would Jesus speak here? How would Jesus respond? What would he do here? That, that'll happen if you learn Christ, if you accept Christ as your teacher, as your rabbi. Walking in the dust of wrong rabbis, to a lesser teacher. For, for the Gentiles, as, as Paul says here, just it leads to hardened thinking, darkened thinking, not seeing things the way that God sees them, not having the wisdom of the creator God, but having the limited fallen wisdom and thinking of a fallen and limited creation. Being Walking in the futile dust and, and learning the ways of this world from the world leads to being alienated from what's called the life of God. That's what Paul says, the life of God. You're not only alienated from God, but because you are alienated and separated from God. And this is not an alienation he chose. This is an alienation you choose. Because you're separated from him, you don't get the life that comes with him. Ignorance, hard and calloused hearts, the kind of heart that can deny and what Romans chapter one says suppresses the truth. To know that there is a God and yet to suppress, suppress that truth and believe there is no God. Being sensual and greedy and impure. Self, these, are, these are self-centered aspects. The world teaches us to look out for number one. The world says you're supposed to care about you first. And maybe if there's enough left over for someone else, then you can give some away. But you've got to look out for you first. You have to be self-centered. 
But that's not the case for us if we're new. Verse 20 says, that's not the way you learned Christ. In other words, that's not the way you learned to walk, and you learned to walk by walking with Christ. So I'll leave you that question on this one. Is, whose dust are you covered in? Whose dust are you covered in? Number two, new people walk with a new uniform. Now, if you were with us for a lot of Colossians, then you'll probably see a lot of Colossians kind of language that we've already preached through for the last several months because Paul wrote both of these letters uh, to similar churches and kind of similar circumstances, and he's, you know, he's the same guy. Um, and so he's, we're going we're to be re- covering, recovering some ground here. The good news is you're already familiar with it. So new people walk with a new uniform. Verses 22, he says, So you need to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through de- deceitful desires. And you need to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry. Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let, no th- let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, do honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Not only do you get a new rabbi, you get a new uniform. The minute I say uniform, you might be thinking of a police officer or military, maybe a nurse or an EMT, Right? Maybe marching band, haha, band, band, band geek right here, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. Have you ever gotten to wear unique clothing? Not, this, is, this is clothing that you've never, never, never worn before, and it's unique clothing. It's not street clothes. It, it's clothing that identifies publicly to everyone else that you're part of something or you hold a position in some way. So, so like, perhaps maybe you're a woman and you got married and at the wedding you had a uniform on. The uniform of a, of a bride is a pure, white, beautiful dress. Regardless, when you've put those unique new clothing, clothing items on and you have this new uniform on, something kind of happens to the way you feel about yourself, doesn't it? Something kind of happens to the way you move. Like, you, you, just, you don't see the new bride put her dress on and then slouch her shoulders, right? Right? And just, like... No, the bride feels beautiful because she is beautiful. She's got this beautiful dress on to symbolize that. She, she walks different. The army man, he puts his uniform on, especially the first time, like an, a guy in the army or air force or, or like the marines, they put on their dress uniform. Like you just don't slouch, right? Unless you're a marine, you don't run in, in your dress uniform. Marines get in bar fights and stuff. They do crazy stuff, even in dress uniform, okay? But they're jarheads uh, and we need them. We need them, okay? Um, but you put on that uniform, you act differently because it's making you feel differently. Before you put on the uniform, though, you have to take off what you were wearing, right? It'd be silly and it, you'd, it'd be really, you'd look really dumb if you tried to have your clothes on and then you put your uniform on the outside. You, you almost look like, you know, old school classic Superman. He puts his uniform on and then he puts his underwear on. You ever notice that about his costume? He wears his underwear on the outside. What a goofball. Here, this passage tells us, if we're new, you get new clothes. And every day, you have to take off what you were naturally born into and put on what you've been supernaturally born into. So when we take 
off the old self. We're going to stop walking and living according to the, the rabbi's teaching of this world. We have to take off the deceitful desires, the desires that lie to us, even, even the desires for good things, believing that those good things can replace God and bring us the kind of satisfaction and safety and flourishing and joy that only he provides. Those are deceitful desires. To put off lying, to put off the, the clothing that tells me I'm, I'm okay to speak demonically because that's what lies are. When you, when you speak lies, that's the way Satan talks. When you speak the truth, that's the way Jesus talks. Literally, lying is demonic language. You don't have to have the, 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 you know, the, the twisted tongue of, of uh, elven Mordor, right? You, you just have to tell a lie in order to speak demonically. Sinful anger. This is anger. It's, listen, it's not a sin to be anger, uh, angry. Paul says, hey, be angry, because there is stuff that you're supposed to be angry about. But in your anger, don't sin. So this is wrath and fury. This is vengeful and bitter anger. The kind of anger that leads us to want to make someone pay. To make someone hurt the way they've hurt me or the way that they've hurt someone I love. The kind of anger that leads me to see that person punished until I'm not mad at them anymore. And who knows how long that'll take and what, and what extent they have to hurt until I'm not mad. This is sinful anger, stealing, and corrupt talk. Corrupt talk here, that, that's, listen, don't narrow that simply to crude words and vulgarity, right, and cuss words. Crude talk is gossip. It's rumor mongering. It's harsh, unstopping, unceasing negativity. It's not simply correcting or critiquing, it's criticizing. It's sarcastic. It's hard. It's uncharitable. But when Paul says, listen, you take that off, that's not your clothes anymore because that's not for you. That's for your natural one. You're new. Put on these new clothes, which means the truth. Put on a new self, which is supposed to be holy and righteous. Holy means set apart. It means in some way, in some very distinct and significant ways, Christians aren't supposed to look and feel and be like the world. That doesn't mean, so the rest of the world says that women can wear jeans. So ladies, we have a special changing room for you in the back. We have some denim jumpers, all right? Uh, for those of you not wearing head coverings, that's uh, pretty much all of you. We have some head coverings. No. It, it's, it's, but there should be the way we think and the way we feel and the way we respond to God, ourselves, one another, the way we respond and interact with in politics, philosophy, school... We're supposed to be like Jesus, and he is very different from the world. To, be, to put on honest labor, to put on generosity, to, to put on, think of your, again, think of your words, think of your speech as clothing, to put on grace-filled speech so that even in anger, even in anger, you can be bestowing grace on someone. I had a conversation with a dear friend and brother this past week and it is not fun to me. I don't like helping in this way. I never feel good or powerful doing this. But he came to me and, and we had to have a talk. And I had, I had to let him, I'm, I'm very angry at you. Really angry. Do you understand why I'm angry? Anger is, by the way, anger is a secondary emotion. Anger, I'll just put this in, in short nutshell for, for, for him. Um, anger is the bodyguard to sadness 
and fear and shame. So when you feel sad, when you feel afraid, or when you feel ashamed, anger is there as your bodyguard. You're never angry first, you're angry second to cover and protect yourself because of those emotions. And I'm angry at this brother, this dear friend, because what he's doing and how he's living, coming from the way he's thinking, is hurting him. It's, it's, it's damaging him, it's killing him. And like a father who tells his kid, I love you, don't touch that hot stove. When the kid touches the hot stove, I am sad for my kid and I want to rush to Marty the party's you know, aid and, and, and put some ice on his finger, right? I want to do that, but I'm also kind of doing that angry because I'm very angry with the person who, who happened to hurt my son and that happens to be my son. I'm not simply angry at him. I'm angry on his behalf. I'm angry for him. And in my words of anger toward my brother, my, my attempt is to warn him and to plead with him and demand of him in Christ to turn around. And that's an act of love and grace. And I'm angry. This, is, this comes from new, a new self, new clothing that, we're, that daily we're trying to learn to put on every day. So we have new feet and a new walk, and therefore in our walk we follow a new rabbi wearing new clothing. Point number three, new people walk with a new heart. Paul says, don't gr- grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't upset, don't disappoint, don't make the Holy Spirit sad by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He's talking and giving us commands about how we're supposed to orient our heart. Again, the rabbis of our day would tell you that no one's allowed to tell you that, you feel, that your emotions are wrong. You shouldn't feel that way. You're delegitimizing me. You're de- you're, how dare you delegitimize my emotions? How dare you tell me how I shouldn't or should feel. Well, one, we should be really cautious and careful when we tell people that the way they're feeling about something is wrong. We should be careful because we're not God. But if it's God doing the speaking and that's who's speaking here, it's God's word. He's not only the master of your mind then, but he's also the hero of your heart. And he's allowed to tell us because he can see into our heart and understand us better than we can understand ourselves. He's allowed to tell us that our emotional posture in the moment is actually sinful. And we need to change how we feel. We need him to help us change how we feel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet brings the word of God. He says, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, the Holy Spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. When you're supernaturally born, when you're regenerated, when you're born again, when you become a Christian and a new person, you get a new heart, which means new affections. And God, the Holy Spirit himself, gives those things to you. See, we're, we're, we're naturally born, every single human being is naturally born with a fallen and wicked heart that doesn't want God and wants other gods, other things, other satisfactions. And when God makes you new, when you're born again, his spirit comes and makes that, gives, gives that birth to you. And now, supernaturally, you're given a new heart, a new capacity to love people and things that you never did love before. Those are the things that God loves. And we grieve the spirit by feeding our old heart and starving our new heart. We, we make God the spirit unhappy. We displease him. We disappoint him. We make him sad. And who's the bodyguard of sadness? Anger. We make the Holy Spirit 
mad too, but not mad like an enemy, mad like a father, mad like a brother who loves us. When we, when we hold on to bitterness, when we hold on to our wrath, when we hang, hold on to our anger, our clamor, our, our loud noises, and our losing our minds and, and, and raging, we slander and try to draw other people down, or just our malice. And so we're supposed to walk in, we're supposed to take and, and feed the heart that brings tenderheartedness, kindness, forgiving one another. In the same way that Christ has forgiven us. Number four, new people walk in a new love. Because you get a new heart, now you get a new love. Verse, chapter five, verse one through two, two. Paul says, therefore, because of all of that, be imitators of God as beloved children. Like a kid who imitates his mom and dad, imitate God your father. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. New people walk in love, imitating what, what Jesus loves. That's how we grow in love is we, we imitate and practice. Day by day, we, we try to practice loving who and what Jesus loves. And you can because you got a new heart, but the capacity to do that. So I, I do have a son. His name is Martin. We call him Marty the Party. And through his life now, he's about to turn nine this summer. Through his life, I, I've come to recognize that he tends to get interested in what I'm interested in. If dad's doing it, he thinks it's cool or fun or exciting, and so he wants to do that. So like uh, years ago, I picked up archery, and I wanted to learn how to, to bow hunt, and now I do. And what Martin wanted, soon after, he wanted his own bow, and he wants to shoot the bow with dad. doesn't happen often enough because I'm a bad dad, all right? I, now we'll talk about how, how great a dad I am in a month on Father's Day, but today, let's tell the truth. I, I like guns and shooting stuff, and we got a BB gun, he sees me shoot, he wants to shoot, he want, and he watches me, I don't even t teach him some of this stuff, he just watches me, and he sees the way I hold the gun, and I didn't tell him to put his hands there, he just puts his hands the way dad puts his hand with the BB gun, right, and he sees me lean forward like this, and so I didn't teach him that, he just leans forward like that, he's imitating me, and he knows I like video games, and so he got into video games, and now he's a tremendous Fortnite player, He's, especially for almost nine, he's really great. Just cranking 90s, building, build battles, everything. He's nuts. Don't worry, the, the, the kids all know what that means. But Martin, he imitates me. It's, he sees what I do and he wants to do it. He sees what I love and he wants to love it. Now that he's learning to find interests of his own, do you, do you know what? I don't play hockey, but he does. But do you know what? He wants, he wants to include me in his hockey. He wants me at his games. He wants to show, he wants to show me his trick shots. He wants to show me the new turning uh, you know, like technique that he learned, how to stop fast, that he just, because he, he loves me. And even if it's not something that I love, he wants me to love what he's loving, and he wants me to approve of it. We are, as Christ's new people, we're given a new heart, which means we're supposed to love what Jesus loves, and, and the things that he's taught us to love, we we want him to be included, and we want him to be happy and approve of, of, of how we're living and how we're walking. Verses 3 through 5 then in chapter 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness, they must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, my life for others is my new love. If you get the new heart and you get the new love that belongs to Jesus and given to you, then your life for other people is now your new love. My life for me my love and exaltation of me, my promotion of my own interests and my own needs, real needs, before anyone and everyone else, that's my old self. That's my old life's love. Which is how you end up in futility, walking in futility without the new heart and the new love of Christ. That's how you walk in sexual immorality. Because sexual immorality in all forms, all right? You can think of the laundry list. I'm not gonna do it right now. But you can think of all the sexually impure things that mankind and womankind have developed for us to walk in and participate in. All sexual impurity is self-centered. All of it is meant to serve me. See, adulterers don't enter into a covenant agreement for one another's good and safety and flourishing. They enter into no covenant. They simply make a contract that as long as you consent, I consent, I'll make you feel good if you make me feel good but this is all about me. The same, work, the same thing works with pornography. All sexual impurity is about my love for me and what someone else can and ought to do for me. It leads to this love for myself, leads to impurity. It leads to covetousness. I can't celebrate or be truly or honestly happy for someone else who's, gonna, who's pregnant and they're gonna have a baby or they're finally getting married, they just got engaged, or they got a new house or new career, because you know what? I'm looking at what I don't have, and they have, they're getting what I want so badly. And I, I'm hard in my heart, and I can't celebrate for you happily, because I don't have a love for you, I have a love for myself. Even if those things, listen, it's Mother's Day. So there, there, there may be women among us who either can't have kids, maybe you're listening or watching this online now or later, women who desperately want to have kids and couldn't or have and they no longer have them around. And it is hard. It's extremely painful. I don't want, I don't want to say this last part and just go, yeah, so if you're hurt and you have hard feelings and, and you're tortured when someone else that you know and you're close to them, they get, they get this thing, this, this child that you want so badly and it def- just defeats you. That's not the sin. That's not the sin. The hurt is not the sin. But Jesus overcomes that hurt with a new heart, with a new love. And you, you still can because you have the capacity of Christ to truly celebrate and honor and love others and not yourself. So people who follow the dust, in the dust of the rabbis of the, of the world, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. Their identity is found in something other than Jesus. But we're, we're, we're to walk in new loves and not old ones. Now, I want us to skip down to verse 22. This is where the new heart with the new love of Christ, a new life which is love for others, shows up in marriage. This is what it looks like to be new. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We covered that last part right there few weeks ago in our sermons, sermon series on Colossians. So you can go and listen to that later. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Husbands, you want a pretty wife. You want a clean wife. You want a pure wife. Okay? We're, we're de- it's washing her with the word of God. This, I want you to have the image of sharing scripture and living scripture with and for your wife in a way that washes her. You need to think nice, warm, clean bath with like the salts and the soap and the bath bomb or whatever and flowers, right, and nice stuff. And, and you get her in the bath and you rub her shoulders and that's all, just a shoulder rub, that's all. And you ask her how she's feeling and you tell her that you're praying for her and that you love her and you remind her of what she means to you. And with the scriptures of God, we are to wash our wives. Too often, husbands, we can become very harsh and impatient and this, that girl needs to get clean. And so... Instead of a bath, she gets the fire hose. Right? This is all that's so that Jesus would present the church, our wives as well, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. If you want to love yourself, love your wife. Right? And this is way better than that lame, worldly, yokel type wisdom. Happy wife, happy life. No, the Bible says it way better and it's way stronger, okay? You you want to love love your wife that's for your own benefit to love her. And what? Like Christ to put her before you. To To put her before you and serve her. To make, to have a heart and love for her before yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Jesus does for the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. With a new heart and new love, the relationships that you have in your family, including in the next section, uh, chapter 6, 1 through 4, with the children, you need to obey your parents. All of that is a reorientation. It's a flipping upside down of the way the rabbis of the world teach the way that families and relationships are supposed to work. Right? God doesn't give you a wife so that you can be exalted on your throne. He gives you a wife so you can be humbled. And she gets the seat and you get to stand. She gets the seat and you get to sit on the floor. She stays safe, and you put yourself in harm's way and in danger. You take the bullet so that she lives. She eats first, you eat second. Right? Because God gives you a wife so that you have someone to pour out your new life, which is love for others, onto. And wives, same thing, same deal. You get a new heart from Jesus with a new love, and you have a new life, which is now a heart and a love for someone else. God doesn't give you a husband for you. He gives you for your husband. Same way with kids, right? Kids, you want to, your children, if you want to flourish and have the happiest, safest life with the longest, most successful future you can have, trust your parents, obey your parents, because this is practice for trusting God someday when you're no longer on your mom and dad's household under their roof. You love and put your parents first. You have a heart. If you're a Christian kid, your new life is a new love for others. Number five, I'm going to skip to number five and take us back to chapter five, 
verse six. Point number five, new people walk with new eyes. New people walk with new eyes. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try, you need to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when, anybody, when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We have, we have new eyes, and now we see by a new light. If you're new, God gives you new eyes to see by new light. Uh, I, want, I heard about a guy once who was converted to Christianity. He was kind of in his middle ages, and for all of his life, he had been enthusiastically opposed uh, to, to Jesus. Keep your religion out of my face. Don't want to hear it. Not interested. Don't like it. Right? You, you do you. I, I do me. Right? And then he, he actually became a Christian, and uh, in, in the narrative of his story, at, before, before conversion, he would read the Bible and understand it, but also not understand it. And because it seemed to be so strange, and all these repeated words and these strange words and these, right? He just goes, uh, it's, all, it's all nonsense. It's all fairy tale. He rejected it and he didn't really understand it. And then he said, at some point, like in a day or two after getting converted, he asked his pastor, he goes, when did the second version of the Bible come out? The pastor's like, what? The, the second, because I'm reading my, someone get, like, give, gave me a Bible when I got saved a few days ago. I've been reading it. And this stuff is popping off the page. This is nothing like the Bible that I grew up reading in my mom and dad's house. Pastor's like, same Bible, dude. Same Bible. No one rewrote the Bible. You got rewritten. You have new eyes. You're walking and living by a new light. Feudal people only live according to what they see in the natural light of the sun, of the moon, of light bulbs, right? And only, and only in what you can consider the empir em empirical, scientific, rational, observable, touchable, feelable, tasteable, hearable, right? That world. And God is spirit, and God is light. They think they see, they think they understand because they think they can trust their senses. I only trust in what I can see. I only trust in science. I trust science too, so I'm not jumping out of any planes. I don't care if we have a parachute on, okay? Right? I, don't, I, don't, I don't swim with sharks, and, and, and I'm not jumping off of my roof, right? And, and I, I use a cell phone. I'm trusting science every time I use my cell phone. I have medicine that I take daily. I'm trusting science, which tells me this medicine is good for me. But for the natural world, the, the natural born world in futility, I don't trust anything that it can't be scientifically proven. Why? Who says? Who are you trusting? My, my senses. I trust my senses and I trust the, sense, the sensible conclusion scientifically that scientists have developed. And nothing else that can't be proved that way, I'm not, I'm not into it. I'm not going to believe it. You ever been to a David Copperfield show, bro? You ever had your senses tricked? You ever heard something that wasn't there? Seen something that wasn't there? You ever been fooled? And then why would you live and walk your entire life according to only these senses which are so easily and so often manipulated, right? 
Don't hear me say I don't like science. Love science. I'm a science nerd. Okay? If I was good at math, I wouldn't be preaching. I'd be an astronomer. That's what I'd be. I love galaxies and black holes and craziness. That's so cool, right? But if you're new in Christ, you believe what the creator of the creation says and who, and who he is. We can now look with new eyes under new light. We can now look at things the way that Jesus looks at them. We can now judge things the way that Jesus judges. So if you're not a Christian, you ought not to judge because you don't see things the way that the ultimate judge does. And if you are a Christian, you ought to be very careful about judging. Jesus doesn't say, judge not. Yes, he does. Okay, cool. He says, judge not. And then the sentence continues. Lest you be judged according to the same measure with which you judge. Jesus is going, listen, you're going to have to make some judgments. You need to be real careful. Are you measuring according to the natural born self that you, you, you used to have? Are you judging according, according to the judgment of the rabbis of this world? Or are you judging according to the way I judge things? Do you, do you discern and have the supernatural Holy Spirit eyesight to discern what is in the heart and the mind of people around you? What is the truth of the matter? So, we used to live in darkness, which is, according to what Paul says here, for those in futility, it's ignorance of reality. It's the inability to see beauty. It's constant lostness. <coughs> lostness. Like, without, without purpose, and even with purpose, still leading to a purposeless place, to a mass power, to a mass influence, to a mass uh, friendships, to a mass money, to a mass material Wealth only to die and still end up naked and in a box or with an ugly suit or dress on in a box, right? What is living in the light? You can see reality the way God sees it. You can see beauty because God is beauty. You can see where you're going because God is showing you the way. And Paul says, what does it mean to walk in the light with new eyes? He says, whatever's dark needs to be brought out into light. So to walk with new eyes in, new, in, in this new light means we, conf- we confess our sins. Because you need to be forgiven. And yes, God forgives you. But we also, we also do need to experience and receive forgiveness from other people too. And now no one can forgive you who should forgive you. And you need that forgiveness because it, it's still in the dark and you haven't, you haven't exposed it. You haven't dragged it out into the light. To be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. To walk in the dust of this new rabbi. Number six. New people walk in new wisdom. New people walk in new wisdom. So look, here, look carefully then how you walk, the way you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Proverbs, the book of wisdom in the Old Testament. Very first verse of the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So look carefully as you walk. Make the best use of time because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is what the will of the Lord is. Uh, so all of us are looking for the will of God. I just want to find out what the will of God is. What does he want me to do? How, how do I find what God's will is for me with my relationship, with my career, with my home, right? with, with this and that? We all want to find the will of God. I need God to talk to me, okay? To which I need to stop responding so snidely and, 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 and cheekily because it's not so cute, but uh, you need God to speak to you. Okay, open your Bible and read it. No, I mean, I want him to speak to me out loud. Oh, okay. Open your Bible and read it out loud. And then you're hearing God's word. And God's will is revealed from his word. I want to know what God's will is. Are you in his book? Are you familiar with his word? Because that's how you discern 
with a new mind and new understanding, with new wisdom, that's how you discern how God wants you to walk in this life. Don't get drunk with wine, because that won't make you wise, right? I know we feel smarter, some of us, when we, when we have a few. We're not smarter, okay? Do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. You need to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for him. Wisdom is having the mind of Christ. So you, you get new eyes and you walk by new light and it makes you wise. You see things God's way. And because you're new, you don't have your old mind who used to think the way you used to think. Now you have a new way of thinking. For example, the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness, says that wine is for getting drunk and for escaping your difficulties. Same thing for any other sort of substance that, 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 that gets you there. But the wisdom of God says that wine is a gift from God to make the heart merry, but not for handing our minds over to foolishness and drunkenness and not for numbing our souls, which the Holy Spirit is trying to minister to as we engage this life. So it's foolish. It's not the new wisdom. It's old wisdom, and it's foolish to waste your time to waste your time and hand yourself over to entertainment and comfort, avoiding your duties. I play video games. I watch a lot of Netflix. I like it, right? But when those things take the place and I'm on those, when I'm supposed to be on duty handling my responsibilities, right? Now, now I'm being foolish. Foolishness is getting drunk and, and avoiding engagement with your life. It, foolishness is ignoring God's will by neglecting prayer and letting your Bible gather dust. That's foolish. You have a direct access, a real, a real, true, real, direct access with the creator God of the universe. And to not talk to him? That's, 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 not, that's not a smart move. You, you, you have his word, which he not only perfectly had written, but he perfectly has preserved and you need wisdom in order to walk in this world and, and to let it get, gather dust, to, to, to open it Rarely? That's not a smart move. It's the opposite of smart. That's really, really dumb. Instead, according to Jesus, with new eyes walking by a new light with new wisdom, now you understand that it's wise, it's godly to steward your time, right? Which means for some of us, it's not a choice between doing some bad things or some good things with our time on our calendar. For some of us, some of us Christians, it means wisdom means discerning and deciding which of these good things that I have as options are the ones that I'm going to do and which ones I'm going to say no to because I'm not, I'm not God. I can't, I'm not omnipotent and I'm not omniscient and I'm not omnipresent. So I can't be everywhere at once doing all of the fun things that I want to do, right? I'm, I'm in an Enneagram 7, if you know what that means. I have FOMO. FOMO is a problem with me. I have fear of missing out. That, the FOMO is strong in my own family. My kid's sister, who's not a kid, like, but my kid's sister, for years, like, if she was out of town or doing something else, she would, like, we call her, okay, how are you doing? Okay, great. You, you guys aren't having fun without me, are you? Right? FOMO is strong in my family. I have to steward my time. I can't do all the good things that are available. I can do some of the good things. And those some that I ought to wisely discern, those are the right things to do. It means wisdom means to enjoy and praise God with one another, to thank God and learn his will and to submit to one another and receive God's grace and wisdom from one another because we fill one another up. Number seven, last point. New people walk with a new purpose. New people walk with a new purpose. 
Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Someone, someone like, give me an amen here. He just copy and paste it. He just control C, control V from Colossians into this one, didn't he? Right? As people pleasers. As, but as, do it as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. New people walk with a new purpose because you've got a new king. You have a new master. Because you have a new king, because you have new authority, everything has changed about what you do for a living. Everything has changed about your position in your family. Everything has changed in your pos- about your position and posture in any organization or club or group or hierarchy and even in the church, especially in the church. Even if nothing changes, everything for you has changed if you're new. So whether you're a slave or you're an earthly master, you have a new purpose given to you by the master of masters for your time in that position. So servants are now to glorify God with hard work, with honesty, with humility, and obedience to their earthly masters because all of that, regardless of what a turd your earthly master is, your employer, your boss, your teacher, your pastor, regardless of what a jerk they are, your honesty and humility and hard work doesn't ultimately honor that, that jerk. It honors Jesus, who is your greater master. And if you, if you have ever have ever wanted to have hope that this jerk who's over you would change, that's the only route, that's the only hope you have for that jerk to be changed, that you're underneath him under, under his authority and you honor Jesus. As you, as you honor an earthly master who's not honorable, you honor Jesus. May that employer, may that boss, may that master see the same person that you see. May he get, may she get the same king that you have now. And masters are now supposed, earthly people, earthly leaders, are now to glorify God with sincerity. Sincerity, not lying, with fairness, with being generous, being trustworthy in their leadership, using their authority, not for their own good and their own position and their own income, but using their authority for the good of those that they lead because that leadership is now service. Because now you're showing all these people, these earthly servants who are under your authority, now, by God's grace, they might see the same king that you see because you're showing them what he's like. So I'll close with this. Kind of hemmed and hawed a bit about kind of ending it this way, but I want you to know that, I've said it a billion times, before before this sermon goes past this pulpit, um, every week it has, to, it has to do its work in here on me. Um, and I, I really want you to believe that because it's true. Um, what, what I'm trying to give to you, I really believe in. Otherwise, I wouldn't try and give it to you. Um, so from like last November 2021 uh, into early March this year, I, I experienced a season of pretty much the darkest depression of my whole life. Um, I had plowed through 2020 and 2021 with my shoulder down, just pushing forward. Uh, there, was, there was really no time, I felt, to kind of just 
rest or relax or take care of me, right? Uh, and by January, I had gotten the Rona, and it, it laid me down. I was virtually crippled emotionally and mentally and spiritually. Our, our church had just hit 10 years old. Um, I've been a pastor for 13 years, 10 years here, planting and leading RCC. In the, in, last, in the last 10 years, I adopted a son. My dad passed away, and he went to Jesus. Our, our church moved locations four times, and this move was a five-month build-out nightmare. Members of our church over those years, members of our church have departed at various times and for various reasons, some, some really good godly reasons and others for terrible reasons, for sinful reasons. And some of those members simply disappeared. Imagine having a teenage son or daughter and they just don't come home. They just disappear. You have no, you have no idea where they're at or how they are or what happened. Uh, each of those people were, was a dear friend who I'd, I had prayed for and supported, taught, counseled, I'd exhausted myself in my fight for their joy in Jesus. And, and now, after 10 years, like so many have just gone. Just gone. Um, former members as well, um, over 10 years, as well as people who haven't even been part of our church, um, time and time again, there have been rumors, gossip, falsehoods spread in our community at other churches, and this is not simply about my reputation taking a hit. It's also RCC's reputation that takes a hit. And, and the worst, painful, most painful stuff about that is, is that so much of the time, these people were sharing and spreading actual facts. They were, sp they were spreading actual, legitimate facts, but, but orienting them in a way to tell and paint a picture that was 180 degrees opposite of the truth. And I, over 10 years, time and time again, I've had to submit to Jesus and, and shut my mouth and not not defend and not address it publicly or doing it, just to let the Lord handle it because he loves this church more than I love this church. And he loves me more than I love me. And he's better at loving me in this church than I am at loving me in this church. Over this 10 years, beloved friends have turned from their ministries. They've turned from their families. Some of them have turned from their wives or husbands or turned from the Lord and, and nearly... Every case, no matter what scripture I could take them to, no matter what tone or attitude or posture I had when I pled with them or firmly and sternly talked to them and warned them, and no matter how I pursued, and, and most devastatingly enough, no matter how earnestly and sincerely and hard I prayed for them, um, it seemed like I was just powerless to get them to turn back. We've had two controversial presidential elections, national strife over racism, and then a pandemic. And those things have filtered in to, to provide the kind of soil that disunity and division, even in our own small church, can take place. By God's grace, it, never took, it has never taken root. Um, overnight in 2020, I had to lead our church to close down and yet stay alive. Um, I had to deal with the world's expectations, our own church's expectations, and, and most sadly of all, my own expectations. I had to step up and deal with these expectations to be a trustworthy local expert, not just on the Bible, but on politics and race and virology and masks and vaccines. 
I don't have formal training in the Bible. I didn't go to pastor school. And now I, I, I needed to be able to lead through a whole bunch of other stuff that have absolutely no, I have all the same resources you do. And by last November, I think I, I, think I hadn't taken time to really stop, sit, and rest in the Lord and let him minister to me and sort out all that I, I had been through my, myself. Uh, and it just jumped on me. Like a, like a big old tiger, a couple hundred, several hundred pounds just on my back. Uh, I was already tired. I was already bruised. I was already sore. And under the incredible fatigue and fog of corona, um, I found myself earlier this year laying in my recliner for four days straight in the dark in our basement, not knowing what time it was, not knowing if I was asleep or dreaming or awake, not eating, not drinking. And it was, it was a miracle for me to respond to texts, even with like one word answers. Because everything exhausted and fatigued and made me angry, made me sad. Um, I want to make it clear that I love being your pastor and I have, it's the greatest thing in my life for the last 10 years, right? It's great. But all that's in there. All of that was like on me and in me. And I had for 10 years been changing stuff I'd been getting new stuff, trying new stuff, learning new stuff, adopting and implementing new strategies and new techniques for my prayer life, for my Bible reading, for how I interact with my wife and my kids, for how I lead and preach and teach to the church. I had learned over 10 years to deal with food and weight loss and weight gain in a much healthier way. I've learned to master alcohol and fight immaturity and foolishness with it, right? I've changed the way I preach, the way I lead, the way I steward my time and energy. I've I spent too many early years of our church, instead of focusing on making disciples, I was focusing on making friends for myself who happened to be disciples. And I learned to change from that to become a better pastor who focused on making disciples of my friends and raising up leaders who could carry more and more weight alongside of me because I'm not Jesus. We've got new pets. We have a new house. We have new possessions. I even got a new raise. Did you know that, right? I got a new raise this past year, and I'm very thankful for it. By 2022, half of our church feels entirely new. And if you've been here long enough, you're like, yeah, it is entirely new. Like half the people here are new, like a couple years, right? But here's where I was at. With all those new things, all those new attempts, all those changes that had been made, I didn't didn't want to be a pastor anymore. It took 10 full years for me to ever end up sitting and permitting the temptation to enter and for me to sit there and dance with it and have a, finally have a conversation. I always hung up the phone before. I always hung up the phone. I always refused to answer the door for this, this thing of, I don't want to be a pastor anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Until, like, until then, I was just crippled. I had no defense. I didn't have something else in mind, by the way, that I was going to do. I just, don't, I just didn't want to do and be this anymore. Um, and I needed, as I have always needed, and as I always will need, for Jesus to do something to me. I needed God to, to make me new. And even, even then, with all these circumstances and things and this un, unknowable question mark of a future ahead of all of us, I'm tempted to pray for and ask God to take me out of the valley or to change my path, or to change the people, or to change my position. 
And what he did was he, he gave me new feet. He, um, instead of changing my path, he gave me new feet. And he's been covering me in his dust. And he's reminded me that the clothes I wear belong to a son and not a slave. He renewed my love for what he loves and who he loves. He renewed my heart with a renewed love for others rather than myself and my self-pity. He gave me new eyes with a new vision to actually have hope for the future. He taught me new wisdom because I was, I was thinking according to the patterns of the world and my old natural-born self, and I felt like 10 years of my life and indeed the next 10 years were probably destined for futility. And he gave, me, he gave me new wisdom to know that that's not true. And he reminded me that I have, a, I have a purpose, a new purpose that he renews every day. And though my calling and my career have not changed, he's been reminding me of the glorious and eternally significant privilege I have of being your pastor, of, of being called upon even though I'm no better than any of you, but being called upon to be a pastor of a church. His people, his sheep, his kids. And I wasn't, and have, I didn't have the, I wasn't walking in the newness. But Jesus did something there in that darkness. He gave all those things to me and I could get them. Do you know why I can lay hold of those things? It's because I'm new. Not because I'm wiser and smarter than you. I have stronger willpower. It, it's not because I'm, it's, it's because I'm new. And these things are given to those who are new. I desperately want God to love you in the same way that he has always loved me, is loving me, and has promised to always love me. That you would be new. And that tomorrow you'd be new. And to, the day after that you'd be new. Every day, receiving and taking hold of these new things that come with those who walk in newness. So whether or not God changes the path, whether he changes your path or your position or the people in your life, I desperately want, and that's why I preach for so long, that he would somehow, he would change you, giving you a new life, a new, a new walk with that. Let me... Let me take us into communion so we can respond.